Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Those are the first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth. He's had nine months to think about what he's going to say. Nine months of not being able to speak. And the first thing that he does when he finally can speak, when his tongue was loosened, when his mouth was opened, he spoke blessing God. Blessed be the Lord. That's what believers do. That's how we start our day. That's how we end our day. Blessed be the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's how we begin everything. That's how we live. We worship. We praise all the time in every situation. When things are going really bad and great affliction and pain with our brother Job, we bow down and prostrate ourselves in worship and we say, blessed be the Lord. And as we go through daily life, we bless the Lord for all of his goodnesses and mercies towards us. And when great joys come upon us and there's great successes and great Salvation from, from tribulation, and we, we open our mouths and we say, blessed be the Lord. He's had nine months to think about this, and he's seen. He's seen in those nine months a lot of reasons to bless the Lord. He, he's been a witness to the miraculous conception of a child and his own wife, far beyond any possibility that humans could expect. He has witnessed his wife, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit and testifying to the presence of God made flesh in the Virgin Mary. He has seen the mother of his Lord, and he has heard her simple yet profound confession of faith in the God who keeps his promises. And so during those nine months, brothers and sisters, as in his wife's womb, his little son was growing in Zechariah. His faith was being fed and was growing stronger every day. Now, it's important to go deep into the details of the word and scrutinize them and examine them and see them from every side and facet and glorify God because of them. But we also got to step back and see the big picture and the the massive streams and lines which run through the scriptures and the history of redemption. So as we step back, what's happening here? We have to look for patterns here as we come into the New Testament from the old. We have to look for patterns of salvation, patterns of reversing the fall. Something is being undone when Jesus comes. And you remember how it started back there in Genesis chapter 3, the woman was the first not to believe the word of God. The man sat there saying nothing in silence and quick to follow her in her unbelief. But now what's happening? The women, Elizabeth, Mary, are the first to believe. Mary believes instantly. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, embraces the gospel. But the man, just like in the garden, is a little slow to believe. 
He was quick to disbelieve. He's slow to believe. He's slow to follow in faith. And the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, the Lord does this deliberately. You know, we, we read the scriptures and we think, oh, yeah, Eve is the one that uh, grabbed that fruit and, and it's kind of, it's all on her. Well, Adam is made responsible for the sin in the scriptures. He's the covenant head of the human race. But the Lord also, in many ways in the New Testament, draws attention to the fact that when things are restored, it is our sisters in Christ who are the first to embrace the gospel, to rejoice in the gospel, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are great examples to us here again in Luke chapter 1. And, but now after nine months of having time to think about this and nine months of the Lord working in his heart and showing him the signs of the truth of the gospel, Zechariah is ready to believe and to worship and to praise. And instead of incredulity, instead of unbelief, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit sweeps him along to prophesy, to worship and to praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, the word visited here is a word used often in the scriptures, and it means to inspect. Someone with a very high office, with a heavy responsibility, comes to inspect. The word in the Greek is episkopos, for the person doing it, and it's where you get the word episcopal from. It means bishop, and it is, the, it is basically the, the verb here is the work of the elders, it's someone who has a heavy responsibility coming to see how things are. Now, when God visits in the, in the Scriptures and in the, in the Bible, He visits, and if things are not well, if things are things of, of, of evil and, and rebellion, then the visit ends up in judgment. And so the Bible talks about visiting the iniquity. For instance, we read that in the law. But if things are sad, if, if God's people are in pain and oppressed then the visit of God brings relief. And that's what's happening here. He has visited his people. He has redeemed them. The word redeemed is when you've got a slave and you have to pay money to set him free. He's paid something to set his people free and he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Now, what is a, what is a horn? Nowadays, we, we, we maybe, I don't know, if we hear the word horn, we might think, as people that live close to the city or in the city, of a car horn, which has nothing to do with it, really. This is, this is, this is a symbol in the, in the scriptures of power. A, a, a strong animal with strong horns is majestic and powerful, and it can destroy its enemies. And if if Luke was written, and if this had happened in, in Canada, it would say he has raised up a, an antler. You think of a moose, right, with these massive antlers. And, and when the moose is about to get really irritated with you and charge you, he lowers his head, and you see that great big rack, and you know that he can do a lot of damage. There's power, there's majesty in those horns or in those antlers. That's the that's the meaning here behind the word horn. There is a power here that is rising up from the house of David, and it is a power that can destroy everything that stands in the way of joy and life and hope. It is a power which can destroy everything 
which stands against God and against his anointed. There's hope for God's people. And why is this happening? Well, because God said it would. Look at verse 7. He has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Look at verse 72. He's, going to sh he's showing the mercy that was promised. He's remembering his holy covenant. Look at verse 73. He's remembering the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah multiplies the ways of saying this, that God keeps his word, that God does what he says, that God keeps his promises. That's what happens. That's what's happening. And Zechariah sees that. Now, what are these promises? You remember, you remember the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the patriarchs, the promises of a land and a people, that kings shall come from your body, the promises to David that there shall be a son of David on the throne of David into all eternity, forever. What are the promises? They're the promises of God to his people that they shall be safe, that we shall be safe, that we are a people loved by God, protected by him, in a place called home where we are safe from everything and everyone who wants to hurt us. And so that's what Zechariah confesses God is doing. That's what God has promised. That's what God is doing. Look at verse 71. We, we shall be saved from our enemies, from all who hate us. Look at verse 74. He has, uh, he is that we be being delivered from the hand of our enemies. That's what God is doing. He's promised to do it. He's doing it. Why is he doing it? Well, so that we can serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness. You think of the picture of this great salvation that God is working in the Lord Jesus Christ, the picture of that back in the Exodus, when God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, stop oppressing my people, let my people go, that they might worship me, that they might serve me. And when God finally makes that happen against Pharaoh's will, the people leave bondage in Egypt, they leave slavery, they leave oppression, and they come out into freedom so that they can worship God. And the very first thing God does is he says, gather before me, before the mountain, I'm on Mount Sinai, and I will speak my law of perfect liberty to you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I brought you out of slavery. So these 10 commandments I give you now are not enslaving or oppressive, but they are how to live a life of holiness and righteousness in freedom. That's what the Exodus pictures, and that's what Christ brings in all of its fullness. And so Zechariah is celebrating the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. He's celebrating deliverance from oppression. He's celebrating freedom to just worship God with nothing getting in the way. What is he talking about? What is he on about? Look around you, Zechariah. The people of Israel don't run the, the land of promise. It's the Romans who are running it. They're the occupiers. And when the children of God walk around the promised land, they're going to 
go to the side of the road and humbly bow when the Russian, when the when the uh, when the Romans come by. They have to show deference and obedience to the oppressors, to the occupiers, and then they have the people that are in cahoots with the occupiers, the, the tax collectors that are banging down the doors and finding every little piece of silver that might be hidden under a bed somewhere. So they're oppressed in every way by the occupiers and those helping them. And then the church, one way that's even worse, because the church is oppressing God's people too. The, the leaders of the church, the religious leaders, they're they're in their palaces there in Jerusalem in their mansions hanging around with the Romans and with Herod and his court and living it up on the heavy church taxation that's on the people of God. They're right in there. They're getting as much as they can out of the whole situation. And while they're doing it, they're oppressing the children of God with heavy, burdensome rules and regulations to make them feel that they're living in perpetual guilt before God. And in a way, the, the oppression of the Pharisees is even worse than the oppression of the Romans. And so that's all, that hasn't changed. That's all happening, and that hasn't changed with little John the Baptist being born. Nothing has changed in Zechariah's life. And if Zechariah looks ahead, it gets worse. Because his son is not chosen to go and become a very famous person and wear nice clothes and be with all the fancy people in the nice mansions and eat good food and, and be very eloquent and everybody loving to hear what he's saying, his son has been chosen by God to live rough out in the desert, to eat crickets, to wear rough clothes, to end up in prison like a criminal, to get executed by having his head chopped off. What's to celebrate about that? What's, what about that would drive Zechariah to say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel? Why is he doing this? Well, brothers and sisters, Zechariah is looking with the eyes of faith. And we know what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Zechariah doesn't see any of this. But he sees Christ. He sees God fulfilling his promises in Christ. He sees all the ancient prophecies to the patriarchs and to the kings through the prophets. And all of those prophecies well up in Zechariah's song because even though he doesn't see it, he sees it already. Unto us a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zechariah doesn't see that yet, but he sees it already. The coming of the king. The king is here. And, and brothers and sisters, when, when we think of a king as Canadians, we think of an elderly man in Great Britain who really doesn't have a great impact on our lives. Whatever he does, 
really doesn't phase us one way or the other very much. But we have to understand that when the Bible speaks about a king, that people in the ancient world understood a king to be kind of like a dad. You know, you know, sometimes children, hopefully you haven't had this experience, but sometimes children, if mom and dad are away and sometimes things can go badly and people start arguing and no, dad said we couldn't, mom said we should, and then suddenly there's conflict and people are not happy and something goes wrong and there's some kind of an emergency and you think, I wish mom and dad were here. You just want them to be there because, because when mom and dad are there, then you're safe. You, you know that there's someone that has authority and knowledge and, and power and, and wisdom and love. And life is good when mom and dad are around. Life is better. And that's how in the ancient world, the king was understood, a kind of a, a paternal figure to his people, kind of a shepherd, caring, loving, dispensing justice, uh, setting right injustices. And so without a king, it would be like a, a body without a head. It's not right. A, a people needs their own king. And so that's what Zechariah sees. He sees the ancient promises coming true that God is raising up the king, the king of kings. And of course, a king, when a king's coming, you have to tell people you need a herald to go ahead. A voice of one crying in the desert, prepare ye a way for the Lord. And so Zechariah says, my son, that's who you are. That's what God is calling you to do. Go, go before the Lord. Go before the Most High. Go before the Lord and declare that the king is coming, the king has come. And look, when you look at verse 76 there, brothers and sisters, as we saw in Mary's song, the clear teaching of scripture, that Jesus is true God of true God, because Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord's here, and, and Mary says, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna magnify the Lord who is in my womb. And it's the same thing here. Zechariah says to John, you're going to go before the Lord, the one who is in Mary's womb, and you will be the prophet of the Most High. Well, that's God, the Most High. There is no one higher than God. Everywhere in the Scripture, from beginning to end, on every page, the Holy Spirit testifies to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is no mere mortal man, but that he is God manifest in the flesh. You have to be blind not to see it because the Holy Spirit hammers at us almost on every page of Scripture to remind us of this truth and to point us to it. So prepare the way. What does, what does John have to prepare the way for? Is John preparing God's people to say, hey, listen, the king's here, and, and now the Romans are gone, and there's no more oppression, and no more poverty, and no more crushing taxation, and no more sickness, and he's going to save you from being imprisoned, and tortured, and executed, and you won't have your head chopped off anymore, or be crucified. Is that what John's going to go and promise the people, like a, an ancient health and wealth preacher? 
It's not what he's doing. Look at verse 77. He's got to go ahead of the Lord, prepare his ways to give knowledge of real salvation. And what is real salvation? It is to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because brothers and sisters, that's the root of everything. The root of every horrible thing. The root of every pain and suffering and death and affliction is sin. And there's no sense working on the consequences without getting down to the root of the matter. What we really need, brothers and sisters, is not more money and more help and a few years longer on this earth and a bigger house and this and that and the other. What we need is we need sin dealt with. We need it ripped out of our hearts and our lives. We need it ripped out of the entire universe and gone. And with it will go all of its consequences, all of the bitter fruit that it produces. And that's what well, that's what God is doing in Christ. Why is he doing it? Because he loves us. You see there in verse 78? Because of the tender mercy of our God. That word tender is a word which, which evokes something deep, deep, deep down. The Bible puts this kind of an emotion in the, in the guts, right down in the very inner person from the very deepest recesses there is a, this isn't just a superficial thing there's this deep kindness this deep compassion this sweet love this desire to help us god doesn't send jesus to deal with sin in the first place because he's angry with sin although he is or because he is a righteous judge although he is but he sends Christ to deal with sin, brothers and sisters, because he loves you. Because he loves you with an eternal love. And he wants you to be healed. So God doesn't come to us kind of looking at us in our sins and say, well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You know, we sometimes do it to each other. We do it to people that we see suffering the results of their bad choices. We walk by somebody that's on drugs or, or homeless or, or both. And we say, well, you know, you get to work. You should have made different choices. We, we can be so ungracious and unchristian in the way we judge people who often are suffering the consequences of their own sinful choices. God doesn't do that to us. If he did, we wouldn't have a chance. God looks upon us in mercy, and mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. God says, I don't want you to reap what you have sown. And so God, in his tender mercy, he deals with our sin. He doesn't promise to give us health, and wealth, and a perfect Instagram life on this earth. Yeah, and, and often, brothers and sisters, that's what we're looking for, right? We're like, well, I'm supposed to grow up and go to school and then graduate from high school and do really well and then get a good university or college or apprenticeship or a job, and then I'm supposed to live so many years and have 
a wife and a husband and children and grandchildren and be very healthy and then have many years of ease and comfort in my retirement. And then when I'm old and full of years, then I just gently pass away in my sleep. And that's kind of the kind of life that I'd really like to have and that I'm working hard to get. Well, nowhere in the scripture does God promise us that. Nowhere. In fact, God says, if you want to be a Christian, take up your cross and follow me. Following Christ is a life of sacrifice, suffering, pain, and death. And through it, he brings us to perfect joy, life, and peace. And the only way to glory is through the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is necessary to deal with the root problem, with our sin, to take away our guilt, to take away our condemnation. And when that's dealt with, then it is well with our souls, no matter what's happening in our lives. And so 79, verse 79, to the sunrise, the end of verse 78, the sunrise visits us, there's that word visit again, visits us from on high. And there's, there's Zechariah just, you know, as a theologian, as a, as a preacher, because that's what he was, priests were instructors in the law, he knew his Bible. And so he's evoking Malachi 4.2 here. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. That's the Lord Jesus. And he's evoking Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so the Bible describes people without Christ, without the light, as in the darkness. They're stumbling around. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're stumbling over. And there they are, dwelling. They're dwelling there. That's where they're sitting. They can't get out of there. There's no way out. And upon this poor and lost people with no ability in themselves, the sun of righteousness rises. The, the light of heaven pierces the darkness. And the prince of peace leads them out of the darkness to the light and in the way of peace. Now, Zechariah knew all this stuff before the angel talked to him in the temple. He knew it very well. There's no sense knowing lots of things about the Bible and lots of things about the, the doctrines of the Scripture if it doesn't mean anything to you. If you don't believe it. You know, little Mary, she put this great theologian, this great leader in the church to shame because she heard the Word of God. She said, let it be to your servant, as you have said. She believed the word. Zechariah's like, well, how do I know that? How, 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 how am I going to know that? I, I, I really don't see that happening. I'm too old. My wife's too old. And he gets judged for his unbelief. But here in our text, brothers and sisters, Zechariah has been changed by the Spirit of God. It's not just words anymore that he knew in his head. 
But now these are words that he has embraced in his heart, and he sees that God's word is true, that this is happening, that God keeps his promises, that his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And that's what incites him to just burst into praise and to worship God, even though, if he looks around, nothing has changed. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He sees it with the eyes of faith. Well, what about you? What about me? All these words, what are they to us? Now, a lot of us have these words through the catechism and through a lifetime of scripture reading and sermons. We got a lot of words in our head. There's a lot of things we know about God and about Jesus. And we know what Advent is, and we know that Jesus is born. We, we remember that at Christmas we celebrate that he is born according to the ancient promises of God. We know those things. But are they just words, or do we really believe them? Because brothers and sisters, here we are in Advent, we're coming towards Christmas where we remember the birth of Christ, but, but he already has been born. We're remembering what has happened. He was born. He did come. God was manifest in the flesh. He triumphed over the powers of darkness on the cross. He was exalted to the right hand of God. He rules over the nations with a rod of iron. And we have way more knowledge than Zechariah. Way more. We've got the entire New Testament testimony of the apostles about who Jesus is and what he did and where he is now and what he's doing and what he's going to do. And Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the witness of the apostles that on every point of the ancient prophecies, Jesus fulfilled it. We know it is true. We know it has happened. We know it is done. And we know, as the apostle says to the Romans in 13, 12 of, chapter, of, of the book of Romans, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. The king has come. The king is coming. And here we are. Our inheritance, which is the world. The world belongs to us, the children of God. It's our world. Every mountain, every valley, every river, every lake, every stream, every field, every plain belongs to us. It's our inheritance. God has promised it to us. But it's occupied. It's occupied by forces of evil that hate God. There is the darkness of evil in the world. There's the corruption and the oppression and the bloodshed which is covering the earth. And the world which is our inheritance is full of the bitter fruit of sin and it seeps into our world. It's in our world. It seeps into our community, into our family, into our bodies, into our souls. 
We experience the brokenness and the groaning of this creation because it's still not renewed. It's waiting for that. And so a child was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. What has changed, brothers and sisters? What has changed? Because we still experience pain and suffering and dying and conflict and all of the horrors and pains of living in a broken world. None of that has changed in 2,000 years, even though that little baby Jesus was born. But brothers and sisters, we have seen something better than what Zechariah saw. We have experienced something better than Mary experienced. Christ is formed in us. The Spirit of God has been poured out upon us and filled with the Spirit. We can sing praise to God as Zechariah did, but even better, we can sing, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people. Because God is keeping his promises. Because God shows mercy. Because God saves us from our enemies. And he sets us free from the oppression of sin to serve him in holiness and righteousness. The sun has risen. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. We don't see it yet. But we see it already. And so, brother and sister, will you go before him, the coming king? As a prophet of the Most High, as a Christian, you share in Jesus' anointing and the anointing of the Christ. You are a prophet, you're a priest, you're a king, a queen. Will you go before him in your prophetic office? Is that your calling? To prepare ye the way of the Lord? Because he has come. And he is coming. And brothers and sisters, he's coming and he is coming quickly. Do you notice as you get older, how time goes faster and faster and faster? How the days just fly by because heaven, eternity is rushing towards you. And why are we holding on to the things of this world? And why are we so focused on things which will pass away? Everything that's going to burn up one day. Why are we rushing after it and grasping after it and filling our minds and our phones with those things when eternity is rushing towards us, when the King is coming, and when we see with the eyes of faith that truth, brothers and sisters, then no matter what pain, what suffering, what hurt we experience, our mouths will be filled with praise. Our life will be filled with holiness and light, and we will walk in the way of peace, the way of shalom, that all is well. Look around, doesn't seem well. I look at Jesus, oh yes, all is well. I see it with the eyes of faith. And I walk the walk of faith. And brother and sister, nothing has changed. Still got my cancer or my disease or my pain or my circumstances or my loved one that's walking away from the Lord. All kinds of 
hard things, bitter things, hurtful things, painful things. But I see Jesus. I see the gospel of Jesus. I see God keeping his promises. And when I see Jesus, I sing and I worship. And my song begins, blessed, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And you know, when you begin singing that, if that's how you begin your worship, then you end with peace, with shalom, that all is well. Amen.